This is Collected Clan, episode 14. It was like replaying a movie of my life and fast forward, except for probably about 10 key moments where it just paused. Welcome to Collected Clan, the podcast about outstanding people I've met along the way. People with interesting stories, triumphs, and ideals. People who've made their mark in the world and in my life. I'm your host, Gregory Byerline. I've met a lot of people over the years, and many people come and go. But these people are the company that you keep. Everyday people, just like you and me. In this episode, we hear from Tiffany Montero and how she's navigating life through the lens of high-functioning autism, the redemptive power of adoption, and how she made a conscious connection to her own birth mom as a birth mom herself. This is real life and some honest, candid storytelling and conversation, plus a special nonprofit spotlight that'll shed some light on how easy it is to help someone else on their journey. And finally, in every conversation we have, I encourage my guests to be real and raw if they so choose. Authenticity is essential. Sometimes that includes certain words or expressions that may not be suitable for young or sensitive ears. This is one of those episodes. Well, Tiffany, thank you for being on the show this evening. Thanks. You and I have covered many miles running together, and I know there's a really cool story to tell. So I'm looking forward to hearing it. We got to know each other by spending however long it was, 36 hours in a van on our company's Ragnar team. I think it was the first time I'd ever spoken to you. We were got stuck in the very back of the van. It was my first, and it was something that kind of everybody had been asking to do for a couple Ragnars before. That just kind of seemed like, man, that's an awfully social experience for me. Yeah. So the notion of being in a van or running, relying upon other people that I only know through work or that I've never really allowed myself to open up to with anything other than work, that experience was kind of terrifying for me. <laughs> so how so? As as you know, um, I have high functioning autism. So over the years the high functioning has, you know, become what it is, you know, functioning. Yeah. <laughs> um, which is a good thing. Which it, it is, but I am self-aware to know that it is not always the case. And I have to know what what situations I can put myself in and which ones I can't. And which ones I'm willing to, you know, like I feel like this is something I really want to do. I, I've known these people for some of them 10 years. I'll be okay. Like it, it won't be the most uncomfortable situation. Why don't I give it a try? These circumstances are probably better than had I agreed to do one with people that I really didn't know at all. So that was the, the final step of me just kind of being able to say, okay, I am going to be comfortable putting myself in this situation. I'm going to be okay. It'll be over in, you know, 36 hours and then I'll go about my day. And, and that I did not know. To be honest with you. Yes. So good for you for intentionally stepping outside of a comfort zone. You know, it was it was one of those things. It was it was marrying kind of the one thing that I do have comfort in for the most part in running mm -hmm. and then making it a social aspect. So it worked out OK. Will I you mean, do I, one again? Right now, 
I say I'll do one again, totally. But I remember, you know, that when it was like four o'clock in the morning and I was freezing cold, lying in my in my sleeping bag, being like, what the hell? Why am I doing this? <laughs> right. I'm never doing this again. But the experience that I had, my final leg especially, made all of the stuff that seemed unbearable or awful at the time way beyond worth it. That was a really cool leg because you had like literally the caboose leg. You had the final leg, right? I did. I did. And I was tired and I knew that my functioning was not high. So a part of me needed to get the hell out of that van real fast. (laughs) Well, that that and the stench of five guys. (laughs) Right, right. There was that. Who had run two legs, three legs prior did not want to get out of that van and go run. Like I wanted to find myself a safe place and running in unfamiliar territory on roads of all places was, was not that place. But once, once I got out there and I started moving and I kind of started just allowing myself to calm down, um, there had been a guy that I had seen, you know, throughout the entire Ragnar at some point or another. And I look at myself and I don't necessarily see runner, but you know how, when you look at people and you're like, yeah, that guy's a runner, this Jim Walmsley esque being, you know, had, had crossed my path probably just, five or six times. He glides like a gazelle and just seems right, to float above right. the ground. Like, yeah, this is running and this is what you do. <laughs> this is your thing. <laughs> right. So I, I was probably, you know, I was, I think we were just outside of like the Vanderbilt area. And he was just standing on the side of the road, like at the stoplight, because that was another thing was once we got into the city, you know, you actually had to stop and wait for cars. And that wasn't <laughs> ideal. There wasn't all. a police escort for you. Final no, not, at all. <laughs> not at all. So I, I had, I had come upon him and he was just standing there and I looked up and I'm like, man, you all right. And he's like, you know, I'm just getting over this injury. And he's just like, he was stuck in his head for real. And I was like, okay, well, cool. Here's my opportunity to get out of mine and get into his for a little bit because it's probably way less messy. <laughs> so he just he just started talking to me and we started running. And next thing I know, I remember looking down at my watch and after having been awake for what, I don't know, 30 some odd hours, I looked at my watch and I realized I was running faster than I had ever run in my life but I was comfortable and this kid I mean he was a kid he was talking to me about you know like I just graduated my girlfriend won't marry me because she hasn't graduated yet I don't know what to do I need to find a job I mean just all of those feelings that we all have kind of had at some point or another in our lives Mm -hmm. this kid had and he had them heavy then I come to find out he was an actually collegiate runner and Olympic trials were kind of like in his sights and he had gotten injured and I just let him talk and tried not to be too aware of the fact that I was sprinting. <laughs> his, his seemed to be a little bit more of a jog, Mine <laughs> wow. a bit more of a sprint, but I was like, just hold on. Like you've got this. It doesn't hurt. You're fine. Let this kid get out what he needs to get out because it kind of sounded like he had not ever. So basically the next four miles 
was me listening to Peter. And I don't remember what advice I gave him exactly. It was something along the lines of, you got to do what makes you happy. You got to find your happy. You got to find something that you're going to get up in the morning and be like, yes, I get to do this. Or, oh, yeah, it's all right. But you, you can't be miserable. You can't settle. You can't, you know, you're too young to make those decisions. Just live your life to the fullest and be happy. And we actually came into town and we started seeing people that were on our teams and everybody's like screaming at us and yelling at us. And we made like, we just kind of looked at each other and made like a very conscious decision to cross the line together. And we did. And uh, we turned around and we hugged each other and he just said, thank you. And that was it. We went our separate ways. I never saw him again. I never heard from him again. Hopefully he's doing well, living his fullest life. But yeah, that was my Ragnar experience. That's a fantastic story. And Peter, if you come across this story and recognize that that's you, send us an email. <laughs> I want to hear a follow-up of that. I want to know where that, how that all ended up. That's really cool. And that speaks to the mental aspect that running, it's your classic 80-20, that running is 80% mental and 20% physical. Or something to the effect of we really only use like up to 30% of our stored energy, but our mind has a governor in it that does not allow us to go much farther than that. Unless you can overcome that mind and be stronger in mind than you are in body. And that, that sounds like that circumstance you had running with him was complete mental shutoff and your body just performed. Which for me, that is almost unheard of because my brain is on overload every second, mainly due to the autism. Mm -hmm. However, the only thing that can trump that are the sensory issues. So as I have learned with my running and then, you know, beginning ultra running, I can be as fit as I want to be. I can train as hard as I want to train. I can be mentally prepared in a way that, that I can't even explain. I can't even put it into words. But if something happened on a sensory level, at some point in time, I might wake up the morning of that race and I can't even stand the way my socks feel. I can't stand the way my shirt feels. My hair is blowing on my face. Makes my anxiety or the sensory levels of it so extreme I feel like I've already run a marathon. So sometimes the mental sensory aspect of it wears me out to a point where the physical doesn't even, it doesn't even matter anymore. Um, that is, and that is one pretty huge side effect that I've had, I've had to accept. I don't like it, but it is what it is. And I guess it's all part of being self-aware, um, knowing that, that that's where I'm at today. Like here's, here's where we are. Has okay. something Plus, like that actually sidelined you yes yes wow what is that um, like it's it's awful you know and i and i can remember as as a child it happening and not not knowing what it was and as i got older quickly having to figure it out because as a girl with high functioning autism we do such a good job of learning how to act based on our surroundings so if something is happening to me in a sensory sort of way to where like I just cringe up and I can't move and I can't function and something's wrong and I can look around and be like, oh, 
what's everybody else doing? Okay, calm down, try and do that, just be cool, you know? When it comes to actually doing physical activity, you can't do that. So it does just kind of shut you down. Any aspirations I have of being an ultra runner and actually hitting a podium or anything like that, that all comes with a pretty big, I don't want to say price tag, but for lack of a better term, like it's, it's going to take a while and it's never guaranteed because it's never guaranteed that I'm even going to make the start line or something else isn't going to happen along the way to, to sideline me. I know for the 100 that I attempted, there were things that happened along the way that would have previously sidelined me and, and they didn't. And I think that I truly feel like I was able to overcome it for that moment. And it was, it was conscious. Like I was very aware that it was happening and I was aware that it was going on. I wanted it so bad. I wanted to prove to myself that I could do it, but I also knew that the fear of failure what would happen to me and the downward spiral that I would hit if I didn't cross that finish line was stronger than anything. On the front end or afterwards? Both. Like, like before the event, were you thinking, wow, this failure is going, if I fail, it's going to do me in? Yes. Oh, like, wow. Like, this is going to wreck me. Completely new. You know, and I'd had this post-it in my car for weeks prior to the race and it was it just said it's a hundred miles anything can happen just run like I had to try and get that into my brain just anything can happen anything will happen you just have to run that's all you got to do I just kept telling myself that this time tomorrow this will be over you love running you're in the woods you're surrounded by people that love you just run but unfortunately, it was still not enough. There were circumstances that were out of my control. Even, even though the circumstances in which I was not able to complete it were out of my control, I was still so angry. Because it was almost like for a while that made it harder. It made it harder because I had trained. I felt that I was so mentally prepared. I had kind of gotten my senses under control. And then... I got attacked by bees and no amount of training or mental preparedness can help with that. It just happened. And what was that? And that was the catalyst that took you out of the race? Yeah. The bees happened around 50 miles. I kept going. We never stopped and took the stingers out or did anything that you know, looking back seemed like a really stupid decision. And I got lost for a while. That is in no way, shape or form. I don't want to use that as an excuse or just that's just a factor in the additional miles that I had run. For me, getting lost on a trail in a race just means that I didn't study the map enough. You know, I didn't pay attention. I didn't do everything on my side. So for this year, I'm definitely doing a better job on the front end of being aware of things like that. To your but, credit, though, didn't uh, some of the local yokels take signs down? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yet another thing that could happen. <laughs> yes. Anything can happen. Um, so after I had I had gone about 
26 more miles on the legs covered in bee stings. So at some point, just I started losing all feeling in my feet. I started losing all feeling in my legs. You know, kidneys were kind of not working as they're supposed to be working. And at that point, you know, I had I had sat down when I got to the to the next uh, aid station, and my crew chief David started like kind of looking at my legs and feeling my legs, and he actually ended up just taking a rock running it down my leg and I just looked at him and he's like you don't feel that I was like no and at that point they they took my bib from me and uh it was it was heartbreaking I've made it a point to be really good at everything I've ever done and I feel like trail running and ultra running is just something that it's not always the case and that one is probably why I love it so much it is a constant battle to get better mentally and physically, but it was, it was, it was heartbreaking. So he's like literally scraping a rock down your leg to yeah. scratch your skin, just to give you yeah, like just to super try and get some sort of what kind of feeling physical what, response. What <laughs> Does this register? Right. Wow. Right. Wow. So. so what is it about running and trail running versus road running? Trail running. It's, it's got my heart for reasons going back to my childhood. I grew up on a house in the middle of 26 acres. I was a strange kid. You know, it was the 80s, autism functioning not, it was, it was not a thing. It was not, Asperger's was not a thing. It was just something that I was different. Um, I didn't talk much. I didn't really have any friends. I rocked back and forth. The things that I wanted to do were not what other kids wanted to do. So I would pack up my backpack and my books, and I would head on into the woods. My dad had built me, like, all kinds of trails and things, and and that's what I would do. Like, that was, that was my time. It's so crazy now to think of, like, I would never let my kids wander off into the woods alone at the age of, like, eight for hours at a time. Like, blows my mind to this day. But the way our house sat down in the woods, like in the middle of the hills, when my mom would ring this huge bell that was on the back porch of our house, it would echo through the woods. So no matter how far I was, the rule was I had five minutes to get back or I wasn't going back out the next day. So I would be off, God only knows how far, sitting down reading or studying the creek water, things like that. And, and my mom would ring that bell and I would have to pack my pack as fast as I could and I would just run and run as fast as I could through these hills over these rocks and it was my favorite part like to the point where I'm pretty sure that I would actively go further each day just to see how fast I could get back I had a pretty successful soccer career I was also a gymnast at the time I was a competitive gymnast so I mean I was I was a fit kid but there was something about that, being in the woods, being able to be active in what had pretty much become my safe place. I, just, I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Did you ever not uh, make it back? Yeah, a couple of times. So it was worth the possibility of not being able to go out the next day to test your limits? Yeah, definitely. That's awesome. Any idea like about how far away you got? The next day. It's fine. No, I have no idea. 
I mean, because I mean, that's one thing. You um, know, a five-minute run home to an eight-year-old legs probably seems a lot farther than it actually is. But at the same time, this big athlete, then maybe it was actually far. And, and to be fair, it went on for years. It, that's not something I just did when I was eight. I mean, that went on well into junior high. I kind of got away from it when high school was, was the first time that I was really in like a school for normal kids. Things just got really, really hard for me. And I stopped doing, which is probably, you know, full circle, probably why I stopped doing all of those things that made me comfortable because at that point I was consciously aware that they also made me weird, right? Like it was not normal for this 14 year old girl to spend her days alone in the woods. I was fully aware that this is not something that every other kid did. Whether I was reading every book I could get my hands on, I was writing, I was drawing, I was, you know, like, it didn't matter what I was doing. That was all harmless. And now, my God, if I could, if I could do that now all day, good Lord. But I, I knew that that was not something I was, quote, unquote, supposed to be doing. And the whole supposed to be doing part, that became a driving force in everything I did from high school on, how I was supposed to be acting, what, what I was supposed to be doing to hang out with these kids or those kids or whatever thing I needed to do to acclimate into whatever room I happened to be in at that time. So I got away from running for years. My life took some crazy, crazy turns, and um, I didn't find it again until after I'd had Georgia, the daughter. I was 26. I mean, obviously, I ran in college with soccer, things like that, but not actually running. And I started, I started doing it then because I was lost. I was, you know, mid-20s, had just moved to a new city. We had just had, you know, a baby. It was just, I was, I was lost. I was also, for the first time, working in an office. And that is not an ideal setting for somebody with autism. Um, <laughs> at all like I was one I once was told by a doctor actually that I should probably get some sort of academy award for pretending like I belong all day every day <laughs> so I started running at lunch you know like I still do just to kind of break that monotony and also to relieve some of the anxiety that got built up this was before you know I was comfortable asking them to turn the lights off in my office because I can hear the lights it was before they got me different monitors because I can hear the sounds that they make. All of those things that I was not yet comfortable telling someone, like saying, hey, here's what I'm working with. If you expect all of this from me, here's what I need. It took me a few years to, to get there. So the running at lunch made that easier. And that just led to, I, I remember I did my first like half marathon and I remember thinking, ew, like, God, who would want to do double this? That's, <laughs> that's insane. Yeah, you know, I've, I've thought the same. <laughs> and then next thing I know, I'm signing up for a 50 K trail and I've never even run a marathon. That distance for non-runners and non-metric people is 31 miles, which is five miles plus longer than a marathon. Right. And the only reason that that happened was because this 50K happened to be about 45 minutes outside of my woods. So it looked and felt 
and smelt exactly like my woods that I grew up in. I knew the second I started running, one, I knew it was going to be hard because I hadn't really run more than like, you know, 15 miles ever at once. (laughs) At that time, I was also a weightlifter. So I was big, like I was carrying some weight around, which was there purposefully, you know, Uh because I liked to carry literally weight around. Yeah. But man, the second I got out onto that trail, I was like, this is it. Like, this is what's going to heal me. I knew it wasn't going to be an easy road. Mm -hmm. I mean, I literally had eight hours to think about it, seven (laughs) hours to think about it. But I knew that that was for me. I knew that it was it. And I had had so many moments when I was out there that just like, I wasn't in the back. I wasn't in the front. I I was smack dab in the middle. I was mid pack, except there was no mid pack. It was just me. Just you? Um, Just me for like four hours. And I remember at one point I got to the top of this hill and I, I kept hearing this weird clicking sound and it was kind of starting to mess with my head a little bit because I knew that I was alone in the woods and I, it had been years, you know, probably 10, 12, 15 since I had been alone in the woods and, you know, things have happened to me in my life that make me slightly more paranoid now than I had been as a somewhat naive kid. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of stopped and gathered my surroundings and, you know, then it happened again. It's like, click, 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 click. I was like, you know what? Just keep moving. So I kept running up this hill. I finally get to the top and I realized I was kind of on the top of a bluff at this point. So I was like, Oh, I want to, I'm going to check this out. Like I want to know what I'm going to see up here. So I walked over off the trail only like, I mean, five feet, 10 feet, maybe. And next thing I know that click, click, clicking is back and it is loud and it is full force. And it's accompanied by screaming as the roller coaster from six flags. Oh my gosh. Came whizzing. Wow. It was such a surreal moment. I was just like, holy shit. Like (laughs) it took a second and I realized exactly where I was. I knew exactly where I was. You was know, it I, the Screaming Eagle? Up, it was totally the Screaming Eagle. Oh, my word. That was my very first roller coaster ride when okay, I was so six years old. Have you been on it since then? Oh, no. I've not been okay. there in 25, 30 years. Is it even still up and running? Yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. It's doing its thing. Wow. So the screams from the Screaming Eagle. It was good. It was like one of those much-needed moments that I needed. On the, over the course of my run to kind of like make me laugh and make me, you know, remember like, God, this is awesome. So when you were like running, every you, sense of the you, word. you heard the clicking of like the, the cars going up the hill. Yeah. But did you hear the screams too? I didn't hear the screams until I got to the top. And when I looked down at my watch, my guess is, is the clicks that I had heard, you know, like two miles, three miles back were probably at the very beginning testing stages of the day. Oh, that would explain. Really early. Yeah. Cause how miles, it was probably like eight to 10. But how freaky would it have been if you had constantly heard those screams? Oh yeah. No, that, Oh my God. Are you kidding? (laughs) You don't want to jump off that bluff. (laughs) (laughs) Stop the madness. Right. What did you do when you like the first time you heard the screams? Was that the eye openers? Like, Oh, that's what this was. There. I was standing right there. I just looked over, and as I heard the screams, I saw the roller coaster, clear as day. 
So it gave you the context. Right. Thank the good Lord. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then, you know what? Another thing about that is I went to that race alone. I drove to St. Louis. I went to my parents' house. My dad was asking a lot of questions. He was, he was concerned to say the least. I mean, he's been my, like, I mean, when it comes to like the pool of dads, I have thought since I can remember and I will think till the day I die, I got the best one. He has gone out of his way from my first memory every day of his life to make my life easier. No matter how hard it got, all the struggles while we tried to figure it out. I don't want to say what was wrong with me, but you know, what made me tick the way I did and not function the way everybody else did. I mean, he was, he was there. He was taking me to work with him. He was taking me to doctors. He was doing everything for me. He coached every team that I played on. He picked me up from everywhere. How are you feeling? Did anything weird happen? I mean, he, he had my back every second. So now I show up. He knows I'm not in a really great place. Kind of, I've been sad, right? And I tell him, you know, I'm going to go run 50K in the middle of the woods. And as my like super protector, he's like, eh, mm, I'm going to need a little more information here. <laughs> right. Um, also, I would like to take you and pick you up. And I was like, no. And he was like, what do you, what do you mean no? And he's like, I was like, no, I, I, I need to do this. Like, that's, that's a big step of me. Like the whole high functioning thing is I know I'm 30, but I still, I got to know that I can do these things. Like, that's just part of it. It's kind of like I had to know that I was going to go off to college and I could do it just as I had to know that I couldn't do it and I had to come home. Mm -hmm. I had to try. So he, he backed off and I drove myself there and I got on the bus that took us up to the trail and I didn't know anybody and I didn't talk to anybody. Everybody was just really nice and welcoming and they didn't care that a grown woman who was all of a sudden no different than that 10 year old autistic kid. And I was rocking back and forth while I was standing there, you know, waiting for the, you know, the start to, to happen. But everybody was so kind you know? Yeah. Was um, this a, um, like forward backwards rocking or was it just like the, uh, like, cause some people will kind of yes, like pace yes. side to side or were no, you doing the forward a, backwards? This was a full on front to back. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I, and then I just went and I, I got, I got back and, you know, I didn't really know if I was supposed to hang out and, and mingle and, I know that, you know, sometimes if you don't in situations of social events, and you just get in your car and leave that that might be kind of off-putting to people or they might think that you're kind of a bitch or, and I, God, I have to be so conscious of these things all the time. But once I finished that and I crossed the finish line and I came in and the race director gave me a big hug and, and, you know, I kind of thanked this older gentleman that had, had kind of talked to me for a little bit when I was starting to be like, Oh, what am I doing out here? <laughs> and I, you know, I thanked him for his kindness. And then, you know, I, I grabbed the next shuttle and I went back to my truck and I got in and I had like 17 missed calls from my dad. <laughs> so I called He's like, him. Where's my girl? And he had 12,000 questions and I just started talking. And I don't know if my dad had heard me do that in years, but it just like, 
and then there was this and this and this and like, and he just, it was nonstop until I was pretty much in his driveway. <laughs> I was like, well, I'm here. I got to go. And, and, you know, and then I walked in. He's like, well, you, you know, now he's asking about, you know, what have you eaten? What, how much water did you intake? Did, did you stretch? Did you literally just run, you know, a 50 K and get in your car and drive home? Like, do we need to do something here? Is there some sort of recovery? Like, you know, then he went into coach's mode. <laughs> but yeah, like, I mean, I even told him then, I was like, I, I want to keep doing this. Like, I want this to be a thing. And yeah, and it has been in every way I can make it be just shy of, you know, life, kids, jobs, and, and also getting to the start line and getting to the finish line. That's a great story. I don't know that comparison is of the devil incarnate, but that's way more compelling and interesting than how I got into running. <laughs> but I can totally see where that is a really deep well that you pull from. Because when we've been on some runs together and like seeing you pull those Ragnar legs off, there's something deeper here that you're tapping into this past Saturday, I did 14 miles, which was my longest solo run. And if it wasn't nine miles in, I was like, oh gosh, when is this run going to be over? <laughs> and I was only nine miles in and I'm training for a 35 miler in like 13 weeks. I'm like, come on. Not alone. Like, <laughs> so, circumstances are so different. I, I totally understand. But I say that to say that when I'm out there, in the trenches again, I'll be able to tap into your story, tapping into your story. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, come on, buttercup. <laughs> Let, let's go left, right, left, right, forward motion. And it constantly changes, right? You had that Saturday run where at nine miles, you felt that way this Saturday, it's going to be completely different. It might not happen at all. It might happen at like three miles and then you laugh at yourself and keep going. It's, it's totally different. I've had to acknowledge that a lot, especially with, as I've started training for this year and really not signing up for a whole lot of races, you know, it's, this is my year of revenge and I'm, I'm gonna cross that finish line. So I'm, I'm trying not to change my training up a little bit, but I am trying to do things that, you know, make me a little bit more uncomfortable, like running with people, you know, <laughs> I know yeah. last year when we were, when I was training, I think I ran with you probably a handful of times, Yeah. but now it's, you know, at lunch, I'm regular, regularly running with someone. Yeah. And then on the weekends, I've started running with some local runners around here. And they're like real runners. They intimidate the crap out of me. So I essentially just like spend my runs like, just keep up with them. <laughs> Hang you know, on like, for dear life. Come on. Don't be a sissy. You got this. Like, <laughs> there's constantly like, there's, it's a little bit of like motivation slash self deprecation. Like, I mean, Saturday, you know, my good friend Katie picks me up and she's going to take me to this run. And I thought there was going to be, you know, just a couple of people. And we pull up at this house off this backcountry road and there's like this line of cars and all of these like super runner, like marathon runners standing outside. And I was like, oh, God. And they're short shorts no. and singlets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're all just like so perfect and fit and just just beautiful runners. And I'm like, oh, God. Here we go. <laughs> like, and you know, but I was like, okay, just, just keep up. Like, that's just what I had to tell myself, like push yourself out of your comfort zone. 
further than the one you are because you're already running with people and just keep up. And I did. And it was hard and I was sore the next day and I loved it. Like it was awesome. Because I think I'd sent something to you a few weeks ago about how like I haven't been sore after a run in a really long time. And yeah. you said something like that, you know, that means me to get, I'm like, no, that means I'm not pushing myself hard <laughs> enough. Like that means nothing other than it's time to step it up. So that is and, what I'm, I'm consciously trying to do. This is Collected Clan. I'm your host, Gregory Byerline. Thank you for listening to these conversational biographies about real life with relatable guests. We operate on a listener-supported system, so the conversations remain honest and real without beholding to companies or products. Instead of interrupting the show with paid advertisements unrelated to our mission, we prefer to promote nonprofit organizations selected by our guests. If you find value in what we're doing here on Collected Clan, please visit our website at www.collectedclan.com and click the support tab to learn how you can financially support this show for as little as $5 a month. Thank you for your support. And now back to this conversation. Well, I remember on one of our lunch runs, something that has still stuck in my mind. And this was probably a year ago. uh, And you probably don't even realize you said it or did it, but we're running through the neighborhood behind the office. And there was uh, one of the churches in the neighborhood was trying to get some rezoning approved that on their land, they wanted to build like a tiny home community, like a oh, tiny yeah, village. yeah, for the homeless. Yes. And, and as I've thought about it, I'm like, this is a genius idea because this church has got, I don't know what the actual acreage is, but let's say they've got four or five acres um, with a building and some parking on it. It's not a huge mega church. So, the, I mean, there's acreage available. It's just grass. You know, and maybe, you know, they have a, a summertime church picnic where they'll bring a tent or, or something or, or whatever. But it's it's largely the land is unused. So I thought, well, that's a really interesting use of city land. It's private land. There's a benevolence factor to it. Awesome. How, how cool is it that this faith community is stepping up to help the homeless by wanting to build a village of these tiny homes? I thought that's a great idea. But the neighbors in the neighborhood that we were running through all had these, you know, Ghostbuster signs on no tiny village or whatever. And I remember something you said was something to the effect of, I'm not sure these people with these signs in their yard have ever really been in need. Or perhaps they would respond to those in need a little more. Um, And I just thought that was really, really cool. I remember that. What I said was, I can't imagine what it would be like to never have been in need. There it is. Yep. Because yes. I can't fathom anybody would would be against something like that if they were able to. I mean, did, did you get everywhere you've gotten in your life completely on your own? Right. You mean, you mean nobody helped you with anything ever? Like, that's what those signs read to me. Yep. Which, after I said it, I realized I didn't know you that well. (laughs) So I was like, ah, crap. (laughs) Like, like, I don't know. You know, it's one of those things that, and it happens often with me and the no filter and it's just, you say things and then you, you know, it's know the room. (laughs) And I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't know the room at the moment. No, but, but it was a perfectly safe room and I, I will likely never forget that. 
and it, it also speaks to the beauty of the just the running community at large, but specifically the ultra running community, which are like these crazies who just go and go and go and go and go because running solo versus running with a group always lends itself to you're going to end up going faster than you intended. And I remember we went to the top of this hill. We came back. We were maybe three miles left in the run. And I looked down at the watch going, oh, gosh, I hadn't intended on running this pace today. It was supposed to be an easy day or, or, or whatever it was. When you're on runs like that and you get in this groove, like you were talking about with your uh, last leg of the, the Ragnar guy. Yeah. The, your, your mind goes places where the filter is not there. And it's a real place. And that's what I love about it. That's what I love about the the running community, but specifically the ultra community, because ultra runners will go there, whether they want to or not. They'll end up there, and it's a it's just a really cool place to to be because everything is stripped down. It's like this here's here's our humanity, here's our genuineness, here's our authenticity, and wow, I don't believe I just said that, but hey, deal with it. And the tra- the trail running community is specifically like that because <laughs> road runners, by and large, are the more uptight sibling of the trail runners because trail runners just they just don't care. I mean, I've seen people run in kilts and unicorn hats and whatever on on the trail, and a legitimate road runner would never do that. <laughs> like, come on, people, get in the woods, lighten up a little bit <laughs> because it's fun. Hey, and it you is. might have beer and fireball at your aid station. Oh, there's always beer. There's always beer. <laughs> if it's not at the aid station, it is waiting for you the second you cross that finish line. Yes. Yes. Handed to you with, with gusto. Yes. So I'm really glad you shared that story because that puts a lot of things in context that I thought I knew, but clearly I didn't. Uh, apparently you and I need to run together some more. Because as I head into the, these longer runs that are pushing my limits, the Lord knows what's going to come out. You know, a lot does come out. And I I kind of feel like it's part of the process. Last year in training for me specifically, I spent a lot of time alone. All of my long runs were done alone. Mm. But what, wouldn't that be a happy place for you? Or was that a, a difficult yes. place? It's a happy place for the most part, but... Sometimes me being in my head without a huge kind of diversion from time to time, it, it's not because I, I start to think, you know, I did the quote unquote run home, which was I ran from St. Charles, Missouri to just outside of Washington, Missouri. I ran to Dutzow. Washington is where I'm from. Okay. Um, and that was, I think it was about 36 miles. Just point to point. And I ran that. Yeah. Okay. Um, mostly on the Katy Trail, which basically is just a long, straight gravel. Like, I mean, no elevation gain whatsoever. It was pretty miserable. This was a big deal for me because I used to drive from Washington to St. Charles to buy drugs at one point in time in my life. Not for fun or social or recreational or whatever, but... When you have high-functioning autism in the 80s and the early 90s and nobody knows what it is, doctors prescribe every drug possible to Mm. you. I mean, my father wrote them all down. Most of them are not used anymore. 
one of them we just found out is now being used as an antipsychosis drug for elderly people. Like, and at one point, I was probably 15 when I refused to take anymore. So basically, I'd been being pumped full of any sort of whatever they thought I had that year, you know, be it childhood depression to bipolar or manic or whatever it was at that time to all of the things that they thought I had, that they were going to fix me with whatever miracle drug they had that year, right? And I reached a point where I didn't want to take them anymore. Didn't like the way I felt. Like some of them I would take before I would go to bed and they would knock me out to the point where my dad had a hard time getting me up in the morning. And just just awful side effects. And it just I just didn't want to do it. But by doing that, I started to self-medicate just to be able to get up in the morning and get to school and get through first period and second period and third period. Certain parts of the autism or the Asperger's, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to call it anymore, were getting worse. You know, I remember being in high school, the, the lights, I mean, the, the grade school that I went to was like a special school. If I wanted to sit outside to work, I could. I mean, there were four kids in my class. Um, but once I got to high school and it was this big, huge, you know, Catholic school, um, these giant fluorescent lights just screaming at me and kids making fun of me and all of that, like, it was a lot to handle for sure. And I would just go to the bathroom and I would sit there and um, self-medicate. And so the drive from Washington to St. Charles was for that. And once I got clean, which, I mean, it didn't take very long. I had, you know, my family was real quick to nip that in the bud before I was in my 20s was that addressed. Um, But those memories are still there and they're still very vivid. So for me to be on that run, thinking about where I once was going the opposite direction, you know, and now I'm literally running home on my feet and I have the strength and the power and the mental capacity to do so. That was pretty huge. And it forced me to actually look at my time in that town and the decisions that I made and the things that happened to me that shaped everything. I was pregnant pretty young. The circumstances were, were awful. And because of those circumstances and the situation I was in, I had to make the decision to give that child up for an adoption. Being adopted myself and it being a closed adoption, I, I, I still have a hard time figuring out where I got to that, how I got to that decision. I, I remember making a pros and cons list and the pro list was just everything for, for him that would, his life, you know, the con was just one and it was me. I'm like, well, that doesn't matter. Here you go. <laughs> Have this baby. But, you know, that run really forced me to look at that time um, and to look at that decision. I mean, I had gone close to 15 years being aware of that decision. And in fact, I actually have a very good relationship with that child who's now looks like a grown man, I guess, because he is. Um, wow. So, so your adoption was closed. Yes. But you adopted out your son and that's open. Yes. Nice. You know, it was just, and you know, and that's one of those things that that run made me focus. I had, it made me have to look at how I felt about my own adoption. 
something that I have never really dealt with in the form of as a child, I was told I was adopted and it was just a normal thing. Like, oh, is this, nobody else has this in their family? Like, you want, you, I guess you guys all do look alike, you know? But I grew up in what I called the whitest town in America with like blonde haired, blue eyed family. And I was all, I did always stick out, you know, like people would ask my grandmother at the grocery store, like, where did she come from? And my grandma would get so pissed. She's like, <laughs> what kind of question is that? Yeah, really? What no do you kidding. Mean, where did she come from? Like, what, what answer do you want that's right. going to be sufficient right. for your stupid question? So it, it was something that I had never really understood from from a different aspect that I later went through personally, right? Mm-hmm. So as a, by the time I got to, as, by the time I was a teenager, I was angry about it. Like, hold up. What do you mean you gave me away? Like, what? I wasn't good enough? Like, I mean, I was a baby. What do you mean I wasn't good enough? Which led to an obsessive level of perfection. Not that I had the best grades everywhere, not that I, or every time or I had, I wasn't the best at everything all the time, but I worked really hard to be really good at everything that I did and to excel and be successful and know as much as I could and be as much as I could basically in hopes to someday be good enough. And then I found myself in that situation and I was able to do the same thing because I knew my story. I knew that I could not raise a child just yet. I was still just learning how to take care of myself. And this kid saved my life. Hands down, 100% can guarantee you I would not be here if it weren't for him. That is the truest thing I'll ever say. He saved my life and I owed it to him to give him best life possible and acknowledging that I wasn't going to be the one that was able to do that. I was okay with that because there was a family that was. So it was actually on that run then that I, for the first time made a conscious connection with my birth mom as a birth mom. Ooh, wow. And it brought in a lot of guilt. Like I all of a sudden felt bad for all of those years, like, just like, what kind of person are you? Like, why wasn't I good enough? All of those feelings that I had felt like, who's to say she didn't feel the same, you know, who's to say that she doesn't want to find out who I am based on the fact that she doesn't think she's good enough. Right. Um, all of these things, all of a sudden were overwhelming. It's, it's amazing how a run, a basic, everyday training run that you're going to force yourself to do like, oh, I'm going to do this one because it's a different city. You know, we'll be, we'll be out of town. The kids can stay with my mom and dad. And it turned into almost a life changing moment for me. Um, it made me look at everything differently. Sure. Sounds like it was a life changing run. And sometimes those are good. Sometimes they're not. <laughs> um, I can I can confirm that that one did bring out some positives. It also dug up a lot of demons. It just you know you know then you spend the next couple of years worth of runs trying to uh, fight those demons off. I guess. Mm-hmm. How long after you um, adopted out your son did you see him again? So, my cousins actually adopted him. 
Oh, wow. Um, you know, it's my cousin that I always thought he was like the closest thing to greatness next to my dad. He was always so kind and so gentle and just just such a genuinely good man. And then I remember I remember his wedding and I remember thinking his wife was just the most beautiful thing and she was so smart and she was just so good to me and an autistic kid and a mom that is bipolar, those two don't always mesh well, especially when there's no internet telling her, you know, how to raise me. It was hard. I can't imagine how hard it was for her. And um, at one point in time, the cousins had, had offered to take me. It did not work out that way. But lo and behold, 10 years later, I got a phone call from him, David. And he said that he had heard, you know, from his mom, who's my mom's sister and best friend, that it was pregnant. And he was aware that the circumstances weren't the best. And he... He knows that, you know, I have obviously a, a very warranted, different opinion of adoption. But if I would like to think about it, that they wanted me to know that the option was there, that they would like to adopt my child. I was barely pregnant at this point. So I remember I remember just sitting there and listening to him and just being like, whoa, that's some heavy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, just saying, okay, like literally just saying like, all right, thanks. And you're like hanging up the phone. And my mom knew exactly what the phone call was. I'm sure it was something that her and her sister had talked about for days. And, you know, she asked me how I felt about it. And I was like, you know, I don't feel about it. I don't have any feelings about it. I, I don't know what I'm going to do. I still don't, you know, I, I was still me and emotions. We don't do well <laughs> still. And at that time I was just, I was so lost. I was so lost. Um, I had, just three weeks prior to that phone call had been living in my car. So the notion that I was now back in my parents' home and my mom was taking care of me and helping me and trying to, to help me get back on my feet. Oh, and I'm also pregnant and I have no money. I have no idea what I'm going to do with my life. And now these people are asking me if I want to give them my baby. Like, it was just like a, a holy shit. Like, I'm going to go take a nap. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, um, I, I was nonverbal very, very, very early. And I went actually back into a state of nonverbal. Um, I only talked unless it was absolutely necessary. I was, I was in a place for sure. I sat in the room of my parents' house that they no longer lived in, but still owned. It was for the most part empty. One of the five bedrooms had a bed in it. I sat in it and read all day mm. and I didn't sleep. I would pace around the house at night in the dark. I didn't want anybody to know I was there. And then finally I went and had, I went and had the ultrasound done and God, I remember that morning so, so vividly just like waking up and my mom had come back to the house and um, asked me, you know, if I wanted breakfast, tried to make me food and just wasn't happening. We went there and again, I did not say a word. My mom had to answer every question to the nurse and to the doctor for me. I mean, she, she carried me literally through this whole ordeal, completely selfless. And they did the ultrasound. You know, she said, congratulations, you're, you know, you're having a boy. And um, I do remember her telling me that his due date was going to be August 28th. And I remember saying he's going to be born on September 1st because one of my very best friends had died in a car accident 
a few months prior on September 1st. And for some reason, I just knew that's how it was going to be. I don't know Mm. why. I went home and my mom had this like address book that she's had since I can remember, right? And I always joke because it weighs like it's like 50 pounds, but a majority of that 50 pounds is from all the whiteout, like where people have moved and she's just put whiteout and then like, you know, put their address and their phone number in there. My mom has one of those address books. I'm like, you know, they make digital ones now. Right. Like, oh God, no. Like that, you're talking crazy now, Gregory. Very much. Um, But I remember asking her for her book. I was like, I need your book. And she was like, what? And I'm like, your book with everybody's name and address. She was like, oh, you know, okay. So she goes and she gets it. She gives it to me. And, you know, I sit down on the couch and I grab the phone and I'm flipping through and I'm flipping through and she doesn't actually have people under their names. She has people under like their parents' names. And then <laughs> so, you know, it took me a little bit to find him because he was under, you know, his mom and dad's name. And, and like he doesn't have his own section with his own house and phone number and all of that. It's like an arrow written on the page on the other side. So I called him and he answers. And I was like, God, I said something along the lines of you're having a boy. And he was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, what? And I was like, you're having a boy, my baby. You can have it. You still want it, right? <laughs> and he was just like silent. And I was like, it, well, it's, it's a boy. And he was like, okay. And, and I was like, well, okay. I, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do now. And he was like, I'll, I'll take care of it. I, I'll take care of it. I was like, okay, thanks. And then I just hung up the phone. And then I I asked her for an envelope. And she gets me an envelope. And I was like, no, 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 I need one of those orange kind. (laughs) She gets me the manila envelope. And I put the pictures of the ultrasound in there. That was it. I just put those pictures in that envelope. And I closed it up. And I wrote his name on the thing. And I was like, can you mail this for me? And she said yes. And then that was it. Like, I spent the next, I guess, five months doing everything I thought I was supposed to do to make sure that this kid was perfect. Like I ate all of the right foods. Now keep in mind, I also had been going through withdrawal. So for the first half of the pregnancy, I actually lost a lot of weight, but then I was like, no, I'm this, everything's going to be perfect. This boy is like, this is everything now. And then lo and behold on September 1st at 1230 in the morning, I started to go into labor, woke up, and I walked around the house for a little while because I didn't want to wake my parents up if it wasn't the right thing, but you know, sort of like <laughs> past my due date at this point, I knew it was right. So I went and I like got my mom, and you know she wakes my dad up, and I remember my dad gets up and gets in the shower, you know, because he's... <laughs> needs to take a shower and fixes his hair because that's what you do hospital because that's what dads do i guess there are um, nurses at the hospital i mean come on right I mean, <laughs> his, his, hair, his hair was perfect <laughs> i promise um and and they you know we just drove to the hospital and again i didn't say a word i had to fill out like all of this privacy stuff when i got there and my mom was speaking for me and the nurse was awful person like she was just being really rude why wasn't I speaking? She was seemingly bothered by it. Like it made her job harder that my mom was giving her the exact same information that I would have been giving her. Actually, probably far more accurate than anything I would have given her. And then it was not easy. I mean, they showed up right after he was born, which was really funny because the nurse came in to do a checkup and David walked in 
she, she came in to do a checkup on me after after he was born and David walks in and the nurse goes, oh, you know, visiting hours are over. And I was like, well, no, he's the father. And she's like, oh, okay. And so she started to like lift up the gown thing to like examine, you know, yeah. down there. And uh, I was like, no, 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 he's my cousin. <laughs> oh my word. <laughs> she looked at me, she looked at him. And I was like, my mom who had kind of been standing over there, she was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me it's explain. a long like, story. And, and the nurse was like, I mean, she just started cracking up, but, um, yeah, I, I didn't have, you know, much of a relationship with him when he was young, obviously, you know, I still had to get my act together and learn how to live life and go back to school and do all of those things. And he grew up always knowing that I was his birth mom. And then I don't remember the age, but at some point he just started calling me Wow! and we started talking. And then at some point he just started getting on a plane and coming to see me. And now he's like my best friend. Oh, <laughs> so that's fantastic. It's, it's pretty incredible. We'll be out. And I'm assuming most people think we're probably brother and sister, but there was also this whole phenomenon aspect of his, I, I'd never had anybody that I looked like. Oh, and, wow. Uh, yeah. We look exactly alike. Wow. So, there was that kind of bond that I'd never had with anybody before. So that has always been pretty spectacular. And in fact, after I had that run that of all runs last year that, you know, kind of led me to think about all of these things, his dad called me and said that, you know, he's starting to ask more questions. Not just that obviously he knows he's adopted, but he start he was starting to ask more questions about how we got to where we are, yeah. you know, with my life. And he, um, he said, you know, I feel like this is your story to tell. He's like, I, I want you to be the one to tell him the story. So he flew him out, went and got him from the airport and we drove back home to Missouri and we went and we sat in the same restaurant that I sat in almost daily growing up. Um, this little diner, it's got really good pie. Um, oh, that's like the best ever. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, you know, I'm looking across at this, like, like this young man. He's taller than me. He's he's this super athlete, so he's, like, very fit. And he He's just looking at me, like, waiting. And I was like, so, what do you want to know? And he asked questions, and I was, I was honest, you know, told him everything the good, the bad, and the ugly. Most of it was bad, and most of it was ugly. <laughs> um, but I think I was always scared that he was going to judge me. Kind of like how I wonder if my mom, my birth mom, feels the same way. You know? Like, okay, what if he knows the truth now, and now I'm not good enough? Mm. It's that same thing that I wonder if that's how she feels. But you know what? It made us it made our bond much stronger when I was done, you know, he looked at me and he was like, you're good now. Right. I was like, yeah, yeah. For the most part, he's like, I'm good. He's like, we're good. Everything worked out. All right. And I'm like hearing those words come out of his mouth. It made a lot of tears and a lot of pain that I still go through, but it made it all a little bit easier. Yeah. Yeah. What a sharp um, kid. He's so smart. He's so smart. And he's, 
I think the one thing that I've noticed, especially over the last year, is he's really protective of me. Anywhere we go, he's he's right there next to me. And I it's it's a strange feeling. It's it is a bond that I I'm sure lots of people have, but it's not something that I had ever really experienced before. And now especially with him being older, we just we have a bond that I can't I can't even put into words. It's pretty incredible. That's cool. How old is he now? Sixteen. Sixteen, yeah. That's impressive. My best friend growing up, literally, he epitomizes the brother from another mother. And he is adopted. So he always had this curiosity of what his birth parents were. You know, what what was the story of his origin, all of that. He went on to adopt, which I just mm-hmm. thought was amazing. It was just fantastic. And he's done and. Uh, what's the Ancestry.com, the DNA thing, because he's almost 48 years old. So he's like, okay, well, I've, I've got some health and medical things going on. I'd, I'd like to maybe get under the hood of <laughs> of this body I'm walking around because I don't have medical records. I don't have a family history and all that stuff. Right. So his wife... It makes filling out paperwork at the doctor's office super easy. <laughs> yes. And I, I think he's still trying to crack that nut a little bit, starting to piece some things together. And both of his parents have, both of them have now passed, so he was able to get a little bit more information out of them. But he's literally at the mercy of, well, let's see what secrets will unravel themselves now. So he's in a similar situation that you are with your birth parent, but your son is completely, you know, the lid's off, everything is out, and he doesn't have to experience those wonders, those questions. So I did a version of a DNA test, kind of the genealogy aspect of the, hi, where are we from? Mm-hmm. About 12 years ago, I have since discovered that the accuracy of that test is probably 15 to 20%. Oh, wow. So I'm like, oh, crap. So, you know, I was kind of where, where they told me I was from, all of that, and, you know, that what we did know about my adoption, and we had a general idea, but now, obviously... 15 to 20 percent I I need better than that yeah so it's really a funny feeling right now to all of a sudden think that I had a general idea of at least where I came from as far as you know on the globe mm-hmm. um, to now all of a sudden be like is anything that I've ever been told true is any of it accurate is the you know where the Catholic charities, the orphanage that I came from, all of these things that I have been told throughout my life, I don't know if it's true or not. Yeah. Um, I did. I ordered. <laughs> I ordered the ancestry thing. It sat in its box on my nightstand for about a month, and then I finally opened it, and I did the whole spitting in the tube thing, and that sat on my desk for about a month. I just mailed it off last week. Mm. So. I can't promise you that I will ever open that email. Hmm. I don't know if I want to know. I don't know if I'm ready to know. And then there's the notion that, say it does tell me, you know, I feel like if my birth mom does not want to be found, she knows damn good and well not to spit in this tube, right? Right. Like, I feel like that's that's a really logical way to look at it. Yeah. Well, what if what if she has other children, and what what if they have spit in these tubes? 
and they don't know. What if they don't know that she was, let me just make something up here. And she was 16 years old and she got pregnant and she got shipped off and she gave the baby up for adoption. And what if she has carried that secret with her for 30 some odd years? And that is her secret and her story to tell. I don't want, I don't want to, I don't want to tell her story and I don't want to open her book if she's not ready to open it because I am a birth mom. I know what it's like to give your child away. I don't know what it's like to never know that child. Mm. I can't imagine that pain. So if she's figured out a way to manage that pain, which God, I hope she has, I don't want to disrupt that for her because the choice she made whether if it was for me or whether it was for her, I turned out okay. So I don't know if I'll ever open that email. What if she has spit in that tube in hopes that her daughter will spit in that tube? I don't know. There's a lot of what ifs. Yeah. (laughs) Literally since the day I was born. There's been a lot of what ifs. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I'm yeah, probably just going to ask my dad what I should do. <laughs> <laughs> that's a safe route, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do. So that run home run you did, that was solo, correct? Yes. That is some seriously strong mental power to go, would you say it was 36 miles? Yeah by yourself alone with your thoughts yeah I did have one moment kind of in the middle where Jose and the girls met me where there was a point where the the trail met the road in a parking lot you know and I I had written about it before previously about all the things I had been thinking about and all the terrible things that had happened to me and the paths that I took that got me to all these different places Like when I kind of came around this turn and I saw these two girls running towards me, like happy Mm -hmm. as could be, like whatever path led me to them was well worth it. Yeah. I've, I've got two girls and a son also, except my son was the caboose, not the lead engine. Um, (laughs) But yeah, there, there's nothing like a surprise. Those big eyes and arms out, outreaching and, yeah, that's magic. I, I mean, I felt awful and I just, you know, I had some dark, dark thoughts and man, I saw those kids and it was just like, oh, geez, this is like, this is everything, you know? <laughs> but, but other than that, yes, it was a, uh, it was a solo run that it was, it was like replaying a movie of my life and fast forward, except for probably about 10 key moments where it just paused and and that was the entire run did you say you've written about it i did i well i blogged for a little while until after my 100 my 86 miles <laughs> as i had mentioned early you know i was really fearful of the world that i was going to fall into if i did not finish and um, i was right i fell into a place that i did not know if i was going to get out of just um, self-loathing 
self-deprecating, just all of these things that I would just sit and tell myself, like, why did you even try that? You're still not good enough. You're still going to fail. You're still, like all of these things that were just constantly in my head for months afterward. I didn't want to run. And so I just tried to write a little bit about it from time to time, but it just, I just couldn't, I just couldn't do it. And at that point, then I, I started associating this blog with that, with those negative feelings, because also this blog was the first time that I started openly talking about the autism and the adoption mm-hmm. and using my running as a way or as a means of, of dealing with it all. So I shut it down, you know, we're done, but update a new fresh blog will be launching at the end of this week. So, um, it is in the works, um, and it is a positive take on what has happened, the healing that I, I had to find on the trails. That was the only place that was going to fix it. You know, the, the one thing that broke my heart was going to be the only thing to make it, to make it better again. Yeah. Does it so, have a name that you could share? Uh, trail healing. That says so, exactly uh, what it is. It is what it is. It's as simple as that. Everybody has to find their thing. You can be incredible at it. You can be the best in the world at it, or it can be incredible for you. It, it can be the best thing in the world for you. Whatever it is, if it makes you feel better, if it makes you want to be better, for me, if it, it makes me a better person, it makes me a better mom, it makes me a better friend, all of these things, that's, that's my healing. The trails will heal me, and that is, that is where I'm at. They're going to break my heart. I know it. I'm certain that that's not my last DNF, but I'm going to get back out and they're going to pick me back up again and we're going to try again. But you know that DNF really just stands for do nothing foolish. So (laughs) you'll be all right. Noted. (laughs) That's the silver lining side of the dark cloud of did not finish. Yeah. Well, yeah, really do nothing foolish. I will remember that. (laughs) Let's take a quick break for this episode's Nonprofit Spotlight, which is special in its own way since it's something we can all do very simply to help someone else on their journey. Tiffany explains what they do. So here in my house, we do this thing, um, Sunday sandwiches, where (laughs) we'll get up on Sunday mornings and we will go to Walmart and buy peanut butter and jelly and bread and chips and waters and stuff like that. And we will sit on the floor of the kitchen and we will make sandwiches and bag them up and put them all in boxes and then we have special bags that have like lady products in there and like soap and shampoo and stuff like that and and we we drive downtown and we park the car on broadway and we walk downtown we give lunches out whoever looks like they might be hungry and this is something that my kids do and i feel like it's something that i have to instill in them because they're fortunate enough to not have to you know be made to feel the way i was Hopefully they don't ever have to live like all of these things that I've had to endure that made me who I was. I don't want them to ever have to endure them. However, they do need to be aware and they do need to to try and step inside that guy's shoes. So that's what we do. That's that's kind of how I've found works for my kids. That's a great idea. When my seven-year-old apprehensively, which is good, can walk up to a homeless man and ask him if he's hungry and and talk to him obviously with me standing right there (laughs) and and to see her hand him his food and him thank her and talk to her and 
him get excited about the lunch that she made with her hands and for her to feel so powerful and proud and grateful that she was able to put that smile on that guy's face. You know, I feel like that's why we're here. Yeah. That's Whatever beautiful. road that got us here. It's all, everybody's just different, but we're all just here to help each other. That's really beautiful. Yeah. That's I'm a story. I am impressed. I may steal that idea, but that's one worth stealing. Everyone should steal that idea. <laughs> I mean, I don't really feel like that's like the most unique idea in the world, right? Like, I'm, I'm certain I have to believe that we're not the only people out there doing that because like I said about the tiny house villages, I've had to ask for help. Yeah. We've all had to ask for help. If somebody out there is out there that we, that we can help and it's as simple as spending $20 on food at Walmart. Why not? We're here to help. Yeah. If we all aren't helping each other. Then what are we doing? I mean, if you take, 20 lunches out there, you feel like that's 20 people that got to eat today that may not have been able to. Yeah. 20 people that felt like somebody cared about them. Acknowledge they existed. Right. When you wake up every day feeling insignificant and you know what that feels like, you want to try to make a conscious effort to make sure that somebody else isn't going to feel that way that day. Again, that puts your tiny village comment in context. So I'm grateful that you were unfiltered on that run because I, I seriously, I've told that story to several people in however long it's been since we did that lunch run. Uh, it was just a couple of weeks ago, actually, I was just telling that story because my sister is interested in downsizing from her house. She's, she's like, I don't need a big house. I just give me one of those tiny homes. So we're trying to find somewhere here in Middle Tennessee where she can put one. So I was telling her that story. I was like, well, if you don't mind living in a, a homeless community of a tiny village. She's like, yeah, that, that'd be all right. <laughs> <laughs> then she could do her own Sunday sandwiches. She could. Right there. No. So that's really cool. And it sounds like we need to uh, tear some more miles up on the road or trails too, because I appreciate how deeply you have gone tonight, but I know that there's probably still some more there. And I'm a curious one, so I like stories. I have stories that I have. Some that I'm still not there yet. But that's okay. I hey, feel like I've got a lot of time. And everybody has those also. Right. Including me. Yeah. If like we're if we're all are... honest, then yes, we all have them. Right. Those are the ones that hold the true power, whether keeping them in creates that power or, or letting them out. Time will tell. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to give a huge thank you to you for sharing this story on this conversational biography podcast well outside your comfort zone. But I think a lot of people uh, will resonate with this and will either do their own Sunday sandwiches or have some stories to share that they can encourage someone else or probably even be encouraged on their own. I guess that's the whole point of telling our stories. Kind of is, isn't it? one person, then it was a success. Also, I, I want you to know that I've walked 2,221 steps. Have you been walking just, this whole time? Just in pacing. Just in pacing <laughs> around my room. I love it. <laughs> so. That's fantastic. Well, that sounds like a great note to end on then because there's a big smile on my face. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell my story. I appreciate it. That's what this podcast is all about. There you have it. A real-life conversational biography with Tiffany Montero. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts to never miss an episode. 
Be sure you visit the show notes for this episode at www.collectedclan.com slash Tiffany Montero. That's Tiffany, M-O-N-T-E-R-O, for photos, links, and additional info related to this episode. Also, I'd love to hear from you about any thoughts or recommendations. Drop us a note at collectedclan at gmail.com or by voice at 615-592-5017. Your thoughts and feedback are welcome. You're also invited to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for Collected Clan, and we'll be there. And a big shout-out to my friends Worldwide Groove Corporation for this episode's original music. The song is Mimosa from their album Chilodesiac Lounge, Volume 1. Check out more of their music at WorldwideGrooveCorporation.com. Thanks for listening. Now go be you. <laughs>